Good morning. Um, this morning's Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34. Two parables, two seeds. You can find it on page 1005 of your Bibles. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Adam. I wasn't sure when to get up, but now I know. Uh, We're going to pray before we reflect on that portion of scripture would you join me kind heavenly father we thank you for your word and we do pray that by your holy spirit you speak to our hearts and minds this morning and show us the lord jesus christ and transform us and equip us to go out and live for him we pray this in jesus name amen um this uh week some of you would have got an email from me about health precautions to do with coronavirus the hardest thing you know about um, trying to work out what to do is who to listen to isn't it every news every news outlet has an article not just one but a thousand it's it's like all the journalists have got one thing on their mind and that's all that they write about and in fact um, I saw that the uh, Liverpool football club manager recently was asked his opinion on coronavirus he did suggest that perhaps as a football manager he had nothing to say on the topic but everyone has an opinion i mean that's just a product of our time and place everyone has an opinion about everything nowadays and this does leave us in a quandary as to who do we listen to (laughs) whose opinion do we listen to i i think that's been the story for the ages about spiritual questions everyone has an opinion I mean, so you should have an opinion about spiritual questions because everyone's going somewhere, or at least might be going somewhere, and so you do need to have an opinion about what happens next. And in our culture, there's lots of opinions about where we're going and what's happening next. Jesus, in Mark's Gospel, as we've been reading through these first four chapters, has been declaring something. He's been talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And the question that's starting to bubble up is, why is Jesus worth listening to? Other people have opinions about this and did have opinions in Jesus' time. 
And Jesus is saying something which is very different to what others are saying. And so the key question that's starting to develop, not just in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who've been antagonistic towards Jesus for quite some time, but in the crowds more generally, and even within his circle of disciples, is why is what Jesus has to say worth listening to? Now, I'm just going to go back before our reading just a couple of verses to verse 21 and read what Jesus says there too because it's all kind of connected. And here's what he says. Jesus said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is Jesus' response to that question of why is what he is worth, he's saying, and what he's describing in the kingdom worth listening to. He says, he is the light. He is the light. He uses this image. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all use this quite central vision, this quite central symbol, sorry, of Jesus in their writing. They refer to Jesus teaching about this topic of the lamp or the light throughout all of their accounts. So Jesus, for Jesus, this symbol is very important. And there's two senses in which he uses the light or the lamp, and they both kind of emerge in this, in this section as well. On one level, Jesus is saying that he is the light. He is the light, and he is the one who reveals hidden things, who makes things that were unclear clear, who clarifies things. We see this account in other places. Most well-known example, I think, is John 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Jesus teaches throughout his ministry that he has the capacity to make things clear, to reveal things. I remember being at youth group once uh, as a youth group leader many years ago and one of the guys ran an escape room activity for, um, for the group. You know, escape room, you know, you get locked in a room and you have to work out how to get out by solving the, the various riddles. He decided that he would run the escape room in pitch black. Now this was a room that we um, had been in hundreds of times over the years. Like You would have felt like this, this room, of all rooms on the church property, people knew well. But he took great extents to block out any kind of light whatsoever. We live in a time when there's always ambient light, so we don't really understand. I mean, maybe if you've come from the country, you understand pitch black, but in the city, we, we have ambient light all the time. Anyway, in this room, there was no such thing. It was genuinely pitch black. <laughs> and, you know, a few injuries did occur because <laughs> you barely know what's up and down when it's really that dark, when it's really that there's really no light at all, let alone where the door is or where the chair placed unwisely in the middle of the room is, etc. Right? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. And, and you know what? There are people in this room for whom this is, this is their testimony. This is why they became a Christian, actually. Because they looked at their life, they looked at the world, and they said, you know, the only person who makes sense of my experience and my life and why I would keep going is Jesus Christ and the gospel. You know, Jesus has such deep explanatory power for our experience. And so when Jesus says, 
there's a lie, there's a lamp. Why would you keep it under the bed? He's saying, I am the light. I am the one who makes sense of things. I'm the one who can, uh, uh, can explain the world. But here's what's interesting. In verse 24 and 25, in that little section that I read, you'll notice what his application is. See? Do you see what he says? He says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, here's what's really important. He doesn't just say, consider what I've said to you. Consider me. He says, consider it and use it. You know, Jesus is not the philosophical key that unlocks the world for you. End of story. Yeah, he's, not, he's not someone who's compelling and so therefore you listen to and you think, great, oh, all my questions about life are now answered, I can continue on my way. No, Jesus', Jesus call actually is that if you accept that he is the light of the world, if you accept that actually he has explanatory power, that everything makes sense because of him, you need to use it. You can't just hear it, you have to apply it. The gospel is not just a philosophical solution, an intellectual solution to a question that's been bugging you your whole life. The gospel is the thing which changes your life, which changes life, which you have to take every day and apply to your life daily. Do you do that? Is the gospel the thing you use to change your life? Is Jesus Christ the one who directly impacts every one of your decisions because his explanatory power actually is the thing that shapes your decisions. It shapes your priorities. It shapes your energies. It shapes the things that you pour yourself into. So how are we doing that? Are we considering and using the truth that Jesus Christ is presenting us with in the gospel? Are we doing that? Jesus says, on one level, he uses this lamp, he uses this image because he says, he has the capacity to make hidden things clear, to reveal things as they are. But one of the other things that the Bible does, uh, and Jesus does in his teaching, is he uses lamp and light uh, metaphor imagery to, um, to say that it shouldn't be hidden itself. The light, the lamp itself shouldn't be hidden. In Matthew 5, 14, where again, one of these very similar sayings that the, the writers replay. And I guess what was happening actually is that in Jesus' life, like most preachers, he had a limited range of sermons. And so he was repeating them. And, you know, each time he repeated them, for the writers, for Matthew or for, uh, for Peter, who was helping Mark write Mark's gospel, the, the particular sermons just resonated with them and they sat in their hearts and when they retold the story, they told particular versions of, of an illustration. In Matthew, this is what Jesus says, says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a, hidi, on a hill cannot be hidden. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' point in using the light imagery there is to say, picking up what he says in the Mark passage too, that you don't put it under a bed. In other words, if you know this truth, if the gospel really is that explaining power for the, for the world and for life, then you can't keep it hidden. In your life, you can't keep it hidden. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us. What's he talking about? He's talking about his own life of, of mission. He's talking about his deep heart, which sends him out to tell people the gospel. 
which costs him so much, ultimately his life. What is it that compels him? Christ's love. He has seen the gospel. He has seen the power of Jesus Christ. And that cannot simply be a private thing. You know, in our culture, our pluralistic culture, it's fine for you to be a Christian. It's fine for you to believe that Jesus Christ explains everything and makes everything clear. But that's a private thing. You put that under your bed and under the bowl and you enjoy it. But Jesus says, you're not meant to do that. The very nature of who he is and what he brings and what he offers means that you can't do that. And Paul's Paul's personal personal realisation is that this love, this extraordinary thing, compels us. Actually, pluralism is the most unloving concept if you believe the gospel. Because what you're consigning many people to is to wander around in the dark, to grope around in the dark. If you genuinely believe the gospel... You cannot believe, you cannot believe in pluralism, at least the form which says that any and every way is right and okay. You can't believe that because Jesus Christ is the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, Jesus said. Now, that's difficult to hear. And I think Jesus knows it's difficult to hear, actually. I think that's one of the reasons why he starts teaching the way he teaches at this point in Mark's Gospel. It is difficult to hear. It is difficult to hear that he is the light, he is the key exponential power, and what's more, he needs, to be, he needs to be prevalent in your life. People need to look at your life and see that Jesus Christ is at the centre of it. He understands that that's difficult. Uh, and I think, in a sense, he goes about explaining why that's difficult. There's two reasons why we find what Jesus is saying and who he is difficult, even though he's such good news. One is the very nature of the kingdom that he's describing, and the other is the nature of our cultural bias. On one level, it's the kingdom. So Jesus says, do you see, he describes the kingdom, verse 31, as a mustard seed, and then he goes on and says, it's the smallest seed of all the earth. Now, here's the problem. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed in all the earth, but Jesus knows all the seeds in the earth. So his point is not, he's not making an agricultural comment. He's, he's drawing our attention to the visual reality of the mustard seed. And he equates the kingdom of God. He says, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed. It's not a mustard seed. It's like a mustard seed. In other words, it's appearance. What it strikes at us is something completely inconsequential. And that makes sense when you think about it. Jesus understands that as people are coming to him in the gospel, they're starting to see, and the disciples are starting to realise, that what he is and who he is and what he's bringing is not what they expected a kingdom to look like. I mean, here is a man who's coming to Israel, a small little Palestinian country, town, a, a, a country in the midst of the extraordinary power of the Roman Empire. And he comes not even as a ruler of Israel, but as a carpenter in a small backwater town of Nazareth. And Jesus knows what they don't even realise yet at this point, that ultimately his ministry is going to mean that he dies in the most cursed place in their time and place, which is on a cross, a Roman cross. Jesus says, that's the kingdom And you know what? It's not what you expect. It's like a mustard seed. Its appearances are not what we expect uh, expect the kingdom to look like. And Jesus goes on then to say, actually, it's not just his his appearance, it's his teaching itself, which is not what we want even. You see, the thing about a mustard, mustard tree, or it's actually a bush, it's not like the cedars of Lebanon, which the Old Testament equates the kingdom to. No, no. It's a mustard bush, and it's a weed. Right? It's a weed. 
And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a weed that's going to sprout this week after all the rain. It's obnoxious, it's annoying, it's a pest. You think to yourself, what? But then reflect on what Jesus is teaching. The kingdom of God has repentance at its heart. The kingdom of God is telling us that we're not good enough in and of ourselves. The kingdom of God is calling us to turn away from our desires and come back to God. The kingdom of God is telling us that we don't have anything which we can offer God which would please him in and of itself. That's the kingdom of God. I mean, the moment that you find it difficult to talk about certain things that Jesus teaches you about, you feel the obnoxious reality of the kingdom. And Jesus says, this is what it is. This is what I've brought. Now, when do we find that hard? But if that's, I mean, then think about, think about the time and place that we live in. You overlay that on the culture that we live in. You know, we, since the Enlightenment, but so much more in the last 50 to 100 years, we have become people who believe that the best thing in life is here and now. You know, the goal of life is human flourishing, we think. We live in a time and place who says the goal of life is human flourishing. This week, you know, they shut down Epping Boys High School because there was a, couple, a kid who was sick and uh, they didn't want to spread. And parents' greater concern was, will we complete the syllabus this year? Will we complete the syllabus this year? What? Why, why do we think that? We can only think that if we think that the ultimate goal in life is to see ourselves flourish, you know, intellectually, socially, materially. Like if that, is, if that is the full extent of life, then that makes sense. But of course, if that is the full extent of life, then the gospel, which says to you, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who meek, and that is what Jesus is teaching, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. If that's the gospel, if that's what Jesus is talking about, if that's what the kingdom looks like, then that is going to clash with a world which describes the ultimate end of each of our lives as flourishing. It's the key word nowadays, right? Are you flourishing? The gospel says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the kingdom of God. No wonder it's so hard to, no wonder it's so hard for the kingdom of God to be something that we want to talk about, that we want to be at the centre of our life and to shine forth when all of our life, all of the surrounding life and all of our other influences are telling us that human flourishing, that what is a good life is the here and now, it, it, it completely alternates from the, from the gospel measure. There's, of course, a problem with a human view of flourishing like this, right? You know, if flourishing is just the here and now, if the best life you can live is the life in the next 20 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life, there is a problem there. There is no justification for the ultimately good but costly things in your life. You can live your life saving people or killing people, but ultimately it means nothing. It means nothing. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, a life under the sun, that is, in other words, that way of thinking, a life that's only about the things that exist here and now, in, in, in the 80 years that God has given you, is ultimately meaningless, he says, or chasing after them. Why? Because where is the justification for a moment of altruism 
that's costly to yourself? Where is the justification for a moment of self-sacrifice that benefits someone else if your life is only about here and now? And yet doesn't our hearts deep down, our hearts deep down know that that is not right, that a life lived like that is not purposeful, that life must be more than a life under the sun? He's saying Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God because that is what we need to hear. We need to know that there is a kingdom of God coming. And Jesus is actually teaching these, these three little sections, in particular that middle parable about the seed, because he wants to comfort his disciples. He's saying, you know, the kingdom that I'm bringing, it's not what you expected, but here's the thing, it's worth it. It's worth it. This kingdom that Jesus brings is a kingdom of great comfort. You look in that second parable, the parable of the seed, where Jesus talks again, he's been talking about seeds and agriculture in the whole of chapter 4, and he returns back to the farmer who puts the seed in the ground, and he says, that seed at night time, it just grows. Verse 28 is the key verse, actually, the whole passage. See what he says right at the start? All by itself, the soil produces grain. All by itself. That's the key to know the kingdom, actually, all by itself. Jesus says, this kingdom is not withheld by human endeavor. It's not. This kingdom is coming, regardless of all the other kingdoms and all the other agendas, the kingdom of God is coming. What God originates, God orchestrates. What God starts, God finishes. What God has said he will do, he is committed to doing. When Jesus Christ says the kingdom of God is coming, it is coming and it will come and it has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. What God originates, he orchestrates. And Jesus' great comfort to those people who hear his word to him, which is that you need to consider Christ and use the gospel to shape your life despite all the costs, is what? This kingdom is coming. What God has started, what God has originated, he will orchestrate. That's your great comfort, he says. He says, when it costs you something, it's worth it. Because what God has started, he will finish. When you make your life about this kingdom and it costs you, it's worth it. Why? Because what God has started, he will finish. What God has originated, he will orchestrate. But he goes more than that. I think Jesus chooses the seed here because the seed is such a beautiful image of the real power of this kingdom, which you cannot see immediately, but only by faith you grasp, and it is true and real power. You know, he talks about how the seed, it goes through its various stages of germination and growth, right? And his point is, within this little seed is such amazing power. I um, used to walk around the Haberfield Bay and go over the Iron Cove Bridge, which is a modern bridge, and it's concrete from one end to the other. There's not a skerrick of soil on it. But I used to always be um, amused by the way that weeds would grow in the middle of this concrete bridge. A little seed would fly in the wind and find a little crevice, and uh, start growing. And what's more, the weed would cause the bitumen to crack. The bitumen to crack. This little seed had the power to crack this bitumen, which men and women had spent hours and hours and hours laying. Such is the power of the seed. Jesus says that is the gospel. It looks weak, it looks powerless, but within it, grace, 
great power. And the reason he says that, of course, is because the gospel finishes with not the cross, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An empty tomb where the life-giving power of Jesus Christ's death breaks open death. It cracks open the tomb. It leaves a tomb that is empty rather than filled with a dead body. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that has resurrection at its heart. And the thing that's going to spur you and drive you forward is a deeper realisation of the real power of the gospel, which is not just for flourishing here and now, but for deep, lasting, wonderful, extraordinary transformation of your life. You know, C.S. Lewis tells in the story of Narnia, the story of Aslan, who's like a corresponds to the Jesus figure. And Aslan ultimately goes to the great witch and gives himself to rescue the children and the, and, and the land from the power of the witch. And he dies. He's killed by the witch on the stone tablet. And the children come later, who've been with Aslan the whole story, and they come to him, you might know. They come to gather his body. It'd be like the women in the gospel story go to pick up Jesus. They come to take Aslan's body, but they find the body missing. And then Aslan appears and they say, how is this possible? How is this possible? And this is what Aslan says to him, says, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. There is a deeper magic in the world. And you find that in the gospel where Jesus Christ cracks open the great power of death. And you know, to the extent that you believe that and you apply that truth to your life, You'll find courage, you'll find shape, which will put Jesus Christ at the centre. That's how you become a person. That's how you become a willing person who promotes Jesus Christ. That's how you become a person who, when people look at you, they say, there is a light in her, or there's a light in him, which is not like this world. It's because the gospel, the power of the gospel, is breaking through. Jesus' great prayer for his disciples that they'd know the power of the gospel. They'd know it, it would shape their lives and they'd want to share it and promote it. We need to, that is who we need to be as St. Stephen's. That's who we need to be. Willoughby, Chatswood, Artam and all those suburbs, they grope around in the darkness but Jesus Christ has come into the world. Praise God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel, which is unlike anything in this world, the deeper, most wonderful magic which breaks open the tomb and sets us free from death. And we pray that you might use that to transform us and use us to transform the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.